Uh, my name is Max. Uh, welcome to my podcast. I'm here with a few friends. Uh, we got Cindy, Jess, Riley, and Natalie. Today we're going to cover a few topics, starting with genocide. We'll probably end up at a collective action. We'll make our way through a few topics. So, to begin with, define genocide uh, as acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a nation, ethnic, racial, or religious group. This includes killing, but also inflicting life conditions aimed at physical destruction, imposing measures to prevent birth, forcibly transferring children, and a bunch more. So the first question that I would like to start off with to ask the group is uh, what forms of discrimination come to mind when thinking about genocide? And we can use examples from uh, the Holocaust, the Armenian Genocide, Whatever uh, comes to mind whenever, when you think of genocide and the discrimination that comes with it. When I think about genocide, I think about ethnic cleansings. Yeah, and there are a lot of racist intentions behind it and trying to leave out a group of people. Yeah, I think um, one clear discrimination is um, discrimination against religion um, that was very prevalent in the Holocaust with um, the Jewish people. So one that comes to my mind is sexuality as like another form of discrimination because there are some countries out there that if you are a certain sexuality you could possibly be killed for it or like just really not accepted for it. So do you guys think that just because one group is discriminated against is that considered a form of genocide or is it just uh discrimination discrimination against that group of people not given the title of genocide wait it's part of genocide it's part of genocide because their intent would be to if wipe out to wipe the entire, out the entire out yeah. or then yes, that's okay. genocide. There you go. Yeah. I would agree. So, moving on kind of in the same realm of genocide, but the way people's, I like the oppressors, their ideas of what the people that they're killing and harming, they need some way to justify their actions. Nobody can just go out there and kill for fun. I oh, some people do. It's <laughs> kind of crazy, but you know, it's not the idea that people are just killing people for fun. It's they have an objection uh a, objective. Um so one form of uh discrimination that I see in genocide is dehumanization and that's used by a tactic that's used by the oppressors a lot to see somebody as less than human which justifies them killing or performing horrific acts uh, on those people and so we have two different types of dehumanization that we talked about in class which would be animalistic dehumanization which is associating people with different animals um, or describing them as having behaviors like animals. Um, 
And then we have mechanic, mechanistic, mechanistic, yeah, dehumanization, which is portraying someone as a robot or a machine. And so with these two uh, ways of grouping dehumanization, does anything come to mind? Any specific stereotypes, uh, actions that people have used, something that you see in the news or something that has been done to you where they've somebody has dehumanized you in a way that made you feel uh like they were referring to you as an animal or like some sort of robot or machine or something totally different can you give an example yeah so um i know that when i was in elementary school we like my elementary school was 95 percent uh Chinese and so when I told people that they would think oh so your school is perfect for math because it was seen that all the Asian kids at my school were just human calculators and all they did was math and you know they couldn't write a paper or do science it was just calculations math whenever you know you need a math problem solved first person they would look to was the Asian kid in the room. Something like that. I mean, I think I follow a very similar experience um, since I am Asian American. Um, you know, a, a lot of my friends would look to me to do like their math and science homework, um, whether I was good at it or not. Um, and yeah, it kind of was just a big stereotype in my school, especially because I was one of very few Asians. Like, I think there were three other Asians in my grade. Another uh, way that we can see uh, dehumanization is through objectification, especially of women, especially now these days with the Me Too movement. It's coming more to light if you guys want to speak on that. I think catcalling is a big thing and just men treating women like objects in general just making them feel less human or not human at all sums it up <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about uh, like the work of dehumanization uh, during the holocaust and how the nazis saw the Jews as less than human and it made them it made it easier for them mentally to kill them because you know we hunt all the time and so it's killing an animal and so this to them was nothing more than just killing an animal and I know that this was like a pretty dark thing to learn about but I thought it was a very interesting way of uh, describing the mental capacity of someone who was just killed, you know, or is responsible in part for the killing of six million Jews. I think that was um, a really interesting way to put it because I never looked at it before. I've never understood the mind of someone who could actually go out there and murder someone or throw someone in the gas chamber knowing that death was certain. And so to put it in this realm of dehumanization and this way of thought and what goes behind the the mental process behind killing someone I thought was really interesting. So 
continuing on this point of objectification, uh, how does it make you feel when someone objectifies you? Uh, it makes me feel angry that I'm seen as an object. Anybody I else? agree. Makes me feel not human. Yeah, and I think the fact that, you know, all of us, but you, Max, are women in this room, I think we can all agree that, you know, when men objectify women, um, we're looked at as nothing more than, like, a sexual object. I mean, that's yeah. shown clearly in media nowadays um i mean we have been trying to you know fight against that but even in like not to go too off topic but like abortion laws and stuff like that where like women don't have full control of like making over their own body, their own over body. Their yes. own body. so yeah it's really frustrating in society when men objectify women even just like jokes about like oh you belong in the kitchen yeah like or cat calling yeah yeah like still forms of objectifying women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So actually, Cindy, you're not really going off topic because I think that it brings us to a really good point about women fighting back against the system and against the oppression. And what we talked about in class was uh, resistance through collective action, and which is a group of people who come together to fight against an injustice and they see the power of change uh, through group action rather than individual action. And so uh, the number that we talked about in class was saying that if you have 10% of a population, the movement will never fail. Um, But we have seen that uh, you only really need 3.5% of a population for a movement not to fail. And uh, just an, an example, um, we have for the Black Lives Matter movement, there is uh, a little bit less than 10% of the population participated in some form of rally this summer. And so for a population to have 10% on board uh, one movement is something that is astronomical and it, we should see a really big change coming up and like showing that collective action does indeed work. It's not going to be one man, one governor, you know, one person who leads a group. It's going to be the entirety of the group that goes throughout uh, the whole process of getting, changing the ideologies of some sort of population. Um, So So one way that we see movements nowadays being spread and really taking off is over social media. So is there anyone that would like to touch on the social media influence of collective action and helping inform a movement, start a movement, uh, recruit people to join a movement, educating people on a movement? Uh, Would anyone want to speak on that? I think it's really easy nowadays since everyone does have some form of social media. Like, I don't know, you can get the word out quickly and post links and keep everyone informed of what's going on. And it's in, like, hold on, what am I trying to say? I don't know. Well, so <laughs> you, you brought up the point about posting links. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, because we all have Instagram here. 
how often will you uh, look through a post or click on a link to read more about a certain subject that is posted? I'm always on Instagram. If something like catches my eye, I look at it. Yeah. And especially if it's like a multiple like thing that I have to go through, like I want to read it. And if it's something that I'm not super educated on, yeah, it's really yeah. easy to learn, learn something that. really quick. Mm-hmm. And Instagram also like filtered it in a way that helps too. Cause like at the bottom of posts about like Black Lives Matter or even like COVID information now, it says like click here to learn more. Mm-hmm. So just a really easy way to spread resources and yeah. gain awareness. Now, other than the Black Lives Matter movement uh, or the Me Too movement, where have you seen in your individual lives collective action be used? And it doesn't matter if it's been successful or not. How has a group come together to fight against injustice and create a change? Definitely, like, the pride movement and, like, how they always have, um, like, parades and stuff in the city. Um, Happy Pride Month, guys. (laughs) And then... um, like, the global warming protests and everything like that, the, I think that has had tremendous success in the past. Even, like, smaller things, like, it doesn't have to be on such a big scale, like, it might be, like, workers going on strike. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, yep. like, small yep. movements. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've seen protests and rallies just in my hometown, mm-hmm. and there was one on campus, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one in my hometown um, over the summer through, like, Black Lives Matter, and um, I would definitely say like the high school students and like the former high school students definitely rallied together pretty well and I thought that was pretty successful. Have you guys ever participated in like a school walkout mm-hmm. or uh, mm-hmm. have you guys like yourselves participated in a protest? Yeah. 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 Um, I participated in one of the Black Lives Matter movements. Um, and then we also had a walkout for my school um, one time, and I think it wasn't, but it wasn't against anything um, discriminatory. Like it was, I, I think, think we had one too. I think it was gun violence. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. A, I was trying to remember what it, like what the it was. I think yeah, so. it was after the Parkland. Yeah, my school had one of those too. Right. So staying on the topic of collective action and protests against injustice. I want to ask you guys if you think that it's hard uh, as white people to feel as if you can stand up for people of color uh, and really protest the injustice that we have in this country and really be a part of this movement. It's not hard. Like, you definitely have to do more learning because you're never, like, we've never experienced something like that. So we can't connect on that level, but it's just, like, basic human decency, I guess. Like, everyone should be treated the same. So you can understand that on that level. Yeah, I think that, you know, as a person of color, so it's a little bit different. Um, Being Asian American and person of color, I think there's like an automatic um, support because you know you face similar oppressions, not exactly the same, but 
you know, like they are both groups that are discriminated against. And, you know, like in my opinion, um, I know that white people might not be able to connect as much on the topic, but I feel like, you know, they shouldn't be afraid to support or speak out about it because at the end of the day, it is something that is wrong. And like, who are you to not speak out against something, against something that's wrong? That's wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's going to harm and affect other people. So I would agree with everyone's point. And I think that speaking from my perspective, it's often as a white male, it's often hard to really understand what sort of discrimination um, a person of color goes through. And, you know, I know that not everywhere are people uh, okay with different uh, races or religions getting along. And I think that a lot of people simply get discriminated or I don't think but we know that people get discriminated based on uh, their race and religion and so it becomes easy for those people to come together and support each other because they understand what that oppression is like they understand how it feels they can better support someone who has gone through that oppression and I can totally agree with that statement. Um, However, I think that not everyone in those groups of oppressed people can feel or be able to express the same solidarity and, um, uh, and show empathy towards someone who has felt that oppression. And for someone who is Jewish, you know, it sucks to see everything going on with Israel and Palestine and the anti-Semitism that we see in this country. But I'm unable to be very empathetic to a person of color who has been uh, discriminated against because of their race. And I think that's because myself, I've never felt that oppression and so it doesn't really matter like the support that you feel you might identify with that group but if you have not gone through the some sort of oppression I think it's really hard for you to feel that support or feel be able to empathize with someone else else So that's one big reason that I thought that I would not make the best uh, ally uh, in the movement. Yeah, and I think as white people too, we witness racism and we call it out, we address it, um, but we can't connect fully with the person that it's happening to just because we haven't experienced racism and discrimination like they have. Yeah, and I think that um, the best thing that, you know, that everyone can do who's not being oppressed is just educate themselves on it, at least get an understanding of, you know, what's going on, because if you don't educate yourself, it's almost like you're letting it happen.
person. And you're yeah. the problem. Yeah, and you're the problem. Yeah. Now, as a person of color, has that, have you seen education really make a difference in just like a small difference? It doesn't have to be astronomical, but has it made a small difference in the way that people uh, act and carry themselves, especially white people? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess so. Um, you know, when I was growing up in high school, there wasn't, there wasn't, there was a lot of racist things that were happening. Um, I feel like a lot of, um, maybe intentional or unintentional, just made it seem like the white population was like superior in a way, because, you know, I was in a classroom where it would probably be 20 kids and only two people of color. Um, Um, Well, just like how how has education really, uh, has it changed the way white people carry themselves and act? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, especially when it comes to privatized education, where there's like a large majority of white people in boarding schools, private schools, magnet schools, and everything like that, I think that definitely makes a huge difference um, because, you know, um, they're just able to afford it more often than people in highly populated populated urban areas. Um, And I think that, you know, just the way that our whole education system is set up where, you know, the taxes go to the school, the schooling system. So, you know, if you're in a predominantly white area that's very rich, you know, those white people are probably going to be a lot more educated than um, some people of color in urban areas because they have more resources. Now, this is a question for the white people in the room. Have you seen that (laughs) education and through this movement of people, uh, especially people of color, trying to educate us on how to act and how to, um, you know, carry ourselves has it made a difference in the overall uh, society? There's no right or wrong answers to this. I don't know if this is off topic, but I think the biggest thing I've learned from the BLM movement is to not just say like, oh, like I'm not racist. It's to be like actively like anti-racist and actually like speak out against it. Not to put you on the spot, but like, what, what does it mean to you to be an anti-racist? And anyone else can jump in as well. To me, maybe educating myself as much as I can on the topic, and if I ever witness like discrimination um, happening, like I'd call it out. Like I've heard people um, like saying like the N word and like things like that, and I've called them out. Like, I don't just laugh at it. Even, like, I don't know, it sounds stupid, but, like, TikToks. Like, if someone's just said, like, it's, like, posting something discriminatory, like, I'll call them out on it. I'll, like, post, like, even, like, something as small as that, even if I don't know the person, like, you just have to be actively speaking out and sticking up for other people. Yeah. Now, we'll kind of turn to a more 
happy note because this definitely uh, got deep, but that's that's what we like to do here uh, in Max's podcast. So the way we ended our last class, I thought was a really cool way, uh, was talking about our radical hope and what what brings us hope for the future, you know, somebody's actions, uh, movements, just anything that gives you hope for the future. Um, I will go first. I think biggest thing that gives me hope is people's uh, ability, people's desires to stick up for what's people's ability and desire to stand up for what's wrong in society and where they see injustice and they're no longer willing to just sit around and watch it happen. They want to stand up, they want to stop it, they want to make a change and they want, they have the desire for a more just society and I think that is something that really gives me hope for the future. Something that gives me hope is social media and just how easy it is to spread information, spread resources, and I hope that people will use social media to uplift and educate others rather than bully them. Something that gives me hope is like us, our generation, like we're going to teach younger generations like how to treat people right and what we're really going to, like they're going to know what's right from wrong. Yeah. I think like a source of hope for me is people's ability to not only educate themselves but educate each other because I think collective action is definitely pushing through and everyone wants to see change and I think coming together is definitely helping. Yeah and kind of adding on to Jess's point I think uh, one hope is that um, you know people want to have like a form of accountability and people will you know tell you when you're wrong and then tell you how to fix it and I think another source of hope more specifically for Clark um I think is cake the Clark athletics um inclusion inclusion coalition um just because um you know they're speaking out against all you know acts of discrimination and you know also kind of partnering with um with the Black Students Union um, at Clark. Well, that just about wraps it up here. I want to thank all my friends for coming and doing this with me. I appreciate it. We're able to have a very serious conversation while it's also very interesting to hear everybody's perspectives and point of views. Um, I hope you guys learned something or found it interesting or enjoyed being able to talk about this as a group. Uh, But thank you. Thank you for coming.